Let's pray together. God, how lovely is your dwelling place. Our souls yearn, even faint, for the courts of the Lord. Our flesh cries out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord God Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, for they are ever praising you. Father, we appreciate the fact that we no longer have to worship you in any particular place. Lord, we don't have to make a journey to a temple in Jerusalem offering sacrifices in hopes that our worship would be acceptable to you. Father, rather our bodies have become the temple of your Holy Spirit. And we worship you as Jesus instructed us in spirit and in truth. And Lord God, your Son, whom you sent, who is Christ the Lord, is the truth. And so, Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would lead us into a time of even deeper worship of our Lord Jesus. Father, might we have eyes to see you. Lord, because we know that as we lift our eyes and as we see that this is true, these words, that our souls long for your presence. It will make the realities of those things around us fade. For we have no control over the temporal. Father, material things are fleeting at best. But you never change. So God, would you lift our eyes so that we might see that today. And we might be changed. For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I'm sure this morning many of us are familiar with the comedic nature of church signs. All you have to do is Google funny church signs and you'll get a number of incredible hits like some of these. Don't you love that one? You've got to think about how you phrase it. This is one of my favorites. Now, some of them are intentional, I know, like this one. However, not, some not so much. <laughs> There's one more for you. There's one more. We could have gone on and on. <laughs> Aren't these great? I think these are fantastic, you know. And so a number of years ago, I heard a story about a young pastor with a love for God and for his gospel who was preaching through 1 John, John's first letter, as was his church's custom at the time. He placed his sermon title on the church's sign each week in order to inform and entice any would-be passers-by to come and hear the message of God's great love in Christ Jesus. And this young man, along with the church, was keen to have a presence in the community, and so they had a number of local partnerships, and they were participating in a program designed to help them identify areas of evangelistic strength, along with opportunities that were there for them to have greater gospel effectiveness. And so to this end, the church planned a retreat, and they were going to have this thing led by a church growth expert being sent out by their denomination. It was very exciting times for this church. And it just so happened that this retreat was planned for the week that the pastor was preparing to preach from 1 John, 
chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And as an avid Bible scholar, for those who want to check and see, this preacher was keen to be faithful to the text, and so he employed as his sermon title for that week, I'm told, the NIV translator's subheading. He just, he just lifted it straight out of the Bible. And so he puts it on the, the sign, thrilled about the prospect of God's word working through God's people for God's glory. He makes sure that it's front and center. And then he got ready to welcome this retreat leader who upon arrival and immediately after engaging in the usual pleasantries asked, who's responsible for the sign? young man anticipating affirmation for his gospel zeal and biblical accuracy readily acknowledged his role in this Christ-exalting work only to be gently rebuked, to be chided for his efforts, which read, quote, don't love the world, exclamation point. I believe the exclamation point was his only original contribution to the sign. And this visiting leader just expressed his concern that such a sign seemed to say or speak a message contrary to what a desperately dying world needed to know of God's deep love for them, and by extension, his church's love for them. And so I've heard, stunned by his gaffe, this young man ran out immediately and changed his church's sign. Grieved he'd been an, in, I mean, just grieved that he'd been an incredible goober. He couldn't believe that this had happened. Now, I can't imagine what kind of young man would have done this, nor the kind of church who would have employed such a man. But this morning... We arrive in James's fourth chapter where our author warns us with words similar to those used by that well-intended but unfortunately misguided young pastor on his church sign. So if you would, find with me James chapter 4 and verse 1. James 4 verse 1. Now there's some scholars who believe that the first three verses here in chapter 4 continue a thought that we would have seen together if you were with us last week in chapter 3 and verse 13 in which James warned his readers against dissensions. They they concede that the focus of these first verses and they also of chapter 4 is different than that which is addressed in chapter 3. However, they argue that the topic remains the same, that is of rebuking sinful attitudes that then lead to division. And as we're going to see together in just a moment, they have a point. However, I believe, along with others, that the first verses here of chapter 4 relate more closely to James's warnings against worldliness, the mud puddles that we were talking about with the children, more closely to worldliness than to the concerns regarding wisdom. And so these first verses are tied to the subject that we're going to see together today, which is as if you have an insert, the title of our sermon message there says, Watch Out for Worldliness, which just so you'll know, I did not put on our sign this time. And so you can all breathe a sigh of relief. I've learned. There's a little self-confession there. So let's, let's read our text together, beginning with verse 1. James writes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. You adulterous people, Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. 
and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, don't slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges his, him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment over it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? May God bless his word read publicly this morning. So as our title makes clear, I believe that James's principal concern here in chapter 4 is worldliness. It's, it's what he describes in verse 4 as friendship with the world. And in the first three verses here, James provides us with what I believe is our initial point for this morning. And that is a description of the condition. A description of the condition. For James, worldliness isn't, isn't a good thing. To be worldly isn't like someone saying that you're trendy or that you're fashionable or you're relevant. It's more like someone describing you as spacey or out there in that tags such as this are not usually intended to be compliments, are they? And yet I, I believe, unfortunately, that there are a number of churches in our nation, a number of religious entities within our culture who are desperate for this designation. They desire to be a warm and inviting place where everyone feels right at home, where no one is offended, and, and we all just love one another for who we are, and we all just get along. And that sounds like an apt description of friendship, right? Which is why I believe and am deeply concerned by churches who desire to be seen as friends with the world. And James, here in our text, shares this concern. For James, friendship in the world or with the world or worldliness is symptomatic of the disease of sin. Worldliness isn't desirable. It's, it's deadly. And therefore, like any good physician, he begins his diagnosis by asking questions. Whenever you visit your doctor, they ask questions, right? And he asks two of them. The first question that James asks is, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes fights and quarrels among you? And here James reveals that the issue under scrutiny is not a one-time thing. Rather, this is systemic. James isn't inquiring into a fight or a quarrel that had occurred amongst his readers. No, he's asking about a chronic illness, fights, quarrels. You know, and so like a doctor asking the question, how long have you been having chest pains? James recognizes that the condition facing his patients here isn't a broken arm like you might sustain after you fell off of a swing. Rather, this is a condition that's eating away at their souls. And this disease is marked by fighting and quarreling. And the words that James uses here are ones that, that suggest both physical as well as verbal interaction. And in fact, there are scholars who've identified a number of extra-biblical texts, and so references outside of the scriptures that use these very same words to describe political disorder, the disagreements that would have arisen between citizens of different places. And it's quite possible, therefore, that James was alluding to the divisive effects of church politics as evidenced by physical and verbal altercations. But we know that... The, that would never be the case today, right? I mean, no one would have bickering and arguing or physical altercations, fisticuffs at a church business meeting. Who's ever heard of something like that, right? And I hope my sarcasm is clear, sadly. Unfortunately, there's a 17th century Jewish philosopher by the name of Baruch Spinoza who noted once, I've often wondered that persons who make boast 
of the virtues of the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Tragically, the first thing that I believe often comes to the minds of many in our culture today when they're asked about organized religion, Christian religion, are our battles. It's fighting and it's quarreling over petty things like church carpet and window treatments. And it wouldn't be so poignant if it wasn't true, would it? So James asks a diagnostic question. He then asks, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And this question would be somewhat like your cardiologist following up his initial inquiry into your chest pains by asking, so doesn't a diet of fried chicken, biscuits, french fries, and gravy clog your arteries? In other words, James is challenging his readers here to acknowledge the reality and the correctness of his diagnosis. For James, these symptoms can't be excused or, or blamed on your chef, so to speak. You can't blame your chef for your diet, just like you can't blame your fighting and quarreling on that someone else. But oh, don't we love to do that? And I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting in my living room and I've heard, it wasn't my fault. He made me, she made me do it. We'll be, oftentimes this happens around bedtime and I'll be sitting there and I'll hear teeth getting prepared to be brushed, if you can imagine that. And someone will get in someone else's way, and it'll be immediately followed by a <sighs> frustrated sigh, quickly followed by the sound of hurried movement. And then I'll hear someone ask, please get out of my way, to which the response, I'm not in your way, will immediately be followed. And this supposed innocence will then soon create gnashing instead of brushing of teeth, which soon results in pushing and then pain, sometimes feigned, you know, sometimes genuine and the injured party will inevitably bolt to find dad to condemn the guilty party as having made me do it. It wasn't my fault. He, he made me do it. She made me do it just so that I'm fair to my children. And church, don't we, all, don't we all struggle with this? We do, don't we? Accepting the reality that we are the cause of much of the strife in our lives. So James asks two questions to identify the source of his readers fighting and quarreling in their desires or pleasures that war within them. And then he provides two sequences to demonstrate the danger posed by such escalating desires. And the first sequence begins with wanting something that you then don't get. And since you don't get it, James says, this ultimately leads you to kill. Now, if you have an NIV translation, the, the translators have chosen to connect that kill with coveting. However, if you have an ESV, I prefer the ESV this morning simply because it separates these two. And I believe that this separation makes it easier to see the escalation of desire that I believe James is communicating. The ESV reads it this way. You desire or you covet and you don't have, so you murder. So in essence, what James is saying here is that desire left unsatisfied, unchecked, ultimately leads to murder. And before anybody jumps in and wants to object, just consider the evidence. And by evidence, I mean the biblical evidence, not the unlimited, unlimited examples provided us on TV and CSI, Blue Bloods, you pick your show. But think about just biblical evidence. Cain and Abel, Joab and, and Abner, David and Uriah the Hittite. And I've been reading through Samuel, just, just went through this story. Or Absalom and his brother Amnon, just to name a few. Each of these men, these murderers, desired something and eventually that desire left them, or led them rather, to murder. Now, 
We could give a host of other examples, I know. But when we look at our society today, isn't this what we see? How many times do we know of robberies that result in murder or cases of adultery that lead then to death? James, I believe, is making clear that desire left unsatisfied leads to murder. And then he provides a second sequence. He writes that coveting but not getting leads to quarreling and fighting. Coveting but not getting leads to quarreling and fighting. Now, admittedly, the end of this sequence is not nearly as severe as the first, but I believe that James includes it here in order to prevent anyone from thinking the very thing that I was tempted to think the initial time I read this verse is that I haven't killed anybody, so this can't relate to me, right? And yet, if we're honest, I believe that we all covet from time to time. Despite saying, oh, man, I'm really satisfied with what I have. You ask older gentlemen, what do you want for your birthday? They rarely have anything. I mean, they always seem to have everything. That's why they get socks. Or at least that's what I console myself with now as I've gotten older. But we don't have any needs, right? But yet I think we all battle to be content. And if left unchecked, this sentiment can and only will escalate, evidencing itself in greater and greater dissatisfaction, marked by quarreling, fighting, and eventually killing. And so James asks two questions here to diagnose the condition. He then observes two sequences which describe the condition, and then he provides us with two reasons for the condition. James says, first of all, you don't have. Why? Because you don't ask God. So apparently James's readers weren't following the Apostle Paul's directions that in everything, with prayers and petitions, with thanksgiving, you are to present your requests to God. Now this doesn't mean that necessarily they failed to pray, although it is likely that that was the case for many. However, for those who did, the subject of their prayers clearly didn't reflect their heart's desires, meaning what they prayed about was likely what they believed prayer was to be about, about God and his plans, about their health and giving thanks for a good day. It's what, what they engaged in and they considered prayer was this lifeless ritual that didn't reflect a genuine relationship. And so they set about satisfying their true desires by means of their own strength. And church, I fear that we're often guilty of such empty communication with God. We speak to him about what we think he wants to hear, what we believe God cares about. All the while, we hold on to our personal desires that we intend to work to obtain, but we never acknowledge before God. And church, such empty religion is that. It's empty because it leaves the practitioner unfulfilled, and it's religion, meaning it's man-made, it's man-powered, and yet what Christ calls us to in the gospel is fulfilling, and it's enabling, it's fulfilling because it entire, depends entirely upon God's grace, and it's, and it's enabling because it draws completely upon His power. So when we come to life in Christ, we're brought into a relationship with God. Therefore, all of our communication with Him ought to be open, honest, transparent, completely transparent. Why? Because He already knows everything. And James says the very reason you don't have is because you don't ask God. And then second, when you ask, you ask for the wrong reasons. So in contrast to those who didn't ask, here James observes that these readers did, but their motivations were all wrong. They asked for things for their own ends rather than those which would serve God's ends. And, and it wasn't even necessarily that these men and women were asking for the wrong things, per se. It was that the issue was with their hearts. In James's words, you ask that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, I don't know about you, but 
I found this point most convicting. Because I, I know how conceited and how self-serving I am. I struggle with asking for things that I cannot see as serving my own ends. Because I, I desperately desire comfort. I like comfort, like living in comfort. I like to avoid pain when possible and be free from uncertainty as I look to the future. And that's, that's what, what much of what I find myself asking for of God somehow serves my pleasures over those of others. And yet here James is explicit that such selfish motivation is sin. It's a symptom of the deadly condition of worldliness, which is why I believe having described the condition now, he proceeds to offer a rebuke for the condition. A rebuke for the condition. Starting in verse 4, I believe that James points us to three specific things. He rebukes three specific issues facing his readers or that his readers were caught up in. And the first was their spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. James calls them an adulterous people. Now, it's interesting to note that in the original language of the New Testament, the word that James used here, which is translated adulterous people, specifically referenced women, but men were not off the hook. I said it's interesting because all of James's prior references used the masculine form of the nouns that he was employing. And it's here, you know, it's clear that he's obviously not speaking solely to women. So why does James in this instance choose to use the feminine? And, I, and scholars believe that it's because James was trying to draw upon the Old Testament motif of God's people who were often described as a wayward wife. If you read through the prophets, the Minor prophets, major prophets, you see repeated references to Israel and their spiritual apostasy as a wayward wife, a woman wandering away from her first love, from her husband. And this analogy, I believe, is also consistent when we look to the New Testament and the picture that we're given there of Christ's church as his bride, the bride of Christ. And so what I believe that James is saying here is that those who entertain friendship with the world, meaning those who, who show affection for the temporal over the eternal, who desire the recognition of the finite over and against the infinite and all who, who long to belong to the world rather than to be set free from it are all enemies of God. They've betrayed him. So as his creation, as his bride, they've forsaken their first love and they're lusting after other things. And friends, I know that for many this is hard to hear and even harder to accept. Why? Because we live in the world. We're born into the world. We die in the world. We know nothing but the world. And so how can we not be friends and feel a belonging to the world, right? And yet as Christ prayed for his disciples, he declared that they are what? You're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. And so the relationship that I believe Jesus and James is describing here isn't geographical, but existential, meaning they're not speaking about, they're speaking about belonging. They're not speaking about boarding of just where you are. And so we all know this reality, and I believe we do, because before we knew Christ, we all had connections to friends. We, we had worldly values, loves, and, and pursuits that, while ultimately dissatisfying in those moments of, of darkness and honesty, they still appealed, didn't they? They felt familiar. But then when we came to know Jesus, everything changed. All of a sudden, all that we'd once found appealing now lacked its former luster, didn't it? The desires that we'd been driven by seemed to have run out of fuel. And our sense of connection to the temporal was cut. Now, we long for the eternal, only not in the way that we had previously found ultimately dissatisfying, but rather in a way that was completely fulfilling. But what hadn't changed? Our physical location hadn't changed, had it? We still live in the world. 
Only now we don't live for the world. In Christ's words, we're no longer of the world. And so, church, as we consider James's words here, I believe that we ought to often ask ourselves, are we friends with the world? Are we friends with the world? And if so, how? Remembering that we're, we're not speaking here about the inhabitants of the world. Because we're all clearly called by Scripture to love our neighbor just as much as we love God. And where else is our neighbor going to live except in the world? So we're not asking if we are friends with the people who inhabit the world, but rather we're speaking about being connected to the values and the priorities that define the temporal, the world. So James rebuked his readers for flirting with the world, but then he also rebuked them, second, for disregarding the Scriptures. For disregarding the Scriptures. I want you to look back with me if your Bibles are still open to verse 5. There in our text. This is, <laughs> this is a tricky verse. This is probably the most difficult verse to understand of James's entire letter. He writes, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit, small s, He calls to live in us, envies intensely? Now, this, verb, this verse is incredibly confusing because if you're similar, if you're like me, it's unclear what Spirit James is describing. Is this the Holy Spirit, capital S? Or is this the spirit that we possess by just by means of being human, our, our life spirit, if you will? And then to further complicate our understanding, it's unclear who envies. Is it the spirit, small spirit, the human spirit, our human spirit that envies? And, and if so, what does it envy? Or is it God's Holy Spirit who envies the spirit that's our spirit that he's placed within us? Or that to which he's drawing us? Now, I'm inclined to believe that James is speaking about the Holy Spirit capital S here, whom we receive the moment that we come to life by God's grace and we repent and believe. And thus, it's the Holy Spirit here who dwells within us, who envies or jealously longs to be wholly obedient to God. And so, so God is the one whom the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, intensely drives us to pursue. And so James's rebuke here then is directed at his readers who disregard God's word to this end. And so rather than displaying a common spirit that yearns for the same thing and would thus be evidenced by unity and peace in our pursuit of holiness, God's holiness, James's readers are clearly divided. And so that's a state that stands in sharp contrast, contradiction to God's word and to Jesus's prayer for his disciples. And church, I think as we consider our own lives again, we would be wise to hear James's rebuke in light of God's word, because if God's spirit his Holy Spirit, who lives within us, is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Is If His Holy Spirit, who lives in us, drives us to want to know Him more, then our pursuit together ought to reflect a spirit of unity and shared sense of certainty because God's Spirit can't be divided, nor will it lead us in different directions. Now, this isn't to say that we're all to be vanilla, to be uniform, right? Certainly not. The church's diversity is a reflection of God's creativity and the power of his gospel to bring such divergent men and women together for a common purpose. No, we're not uniform, but we are unified as we all submit to the authority of God's word and the leadership of his Holy Spirit. And so James rebukes his readers for their spiritual adultery, for their disregard for scripture, and then third, for their pride. For their pride. For James, worldliness's defining feature is pride. It's the very attribute that, that quoting from Proverbs 3.34, James says, God opposes. However, for the humble, they find grace. And not just sufficient grace, but more grace. Literally, there, greater grace. 
And what's interesting is that James doesn't explicitly state what this grace is greater than, like does the Apostle Paul in Romans 5.20, where he declares that where sin increased, as you may recall, sin, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. But here it's, in li- it's, it's likely that James has this very same thing in mind, only he's thinking specifically of the sin of pride, because that's the emphasis of the scripture that he quotes to that end. And church, isn't pride the distinguishing characteristic as we consider our world? It's a desire for self over others. It's a longing for my way over your way, the desperation to rule rather than to be ruled. And pride is the root of sin. As, as Adam rejected and Eve rejected God in the garden, they sought their way over his way. And from that moment, every single human being has been tainted by pride and consequently rightly opposed by God. There's not a single person on this planet that is pride free. We, we even have groups today who celebrate pride whole pride month, and that's nothing more than the celebration of sin which God opposes. And so left to ourselves, we all fall under God's righteous opposition, but he gives us grace greater than our pride. In Christ, God has made it possible for people to escape his holy opposition. So what do we do? How do we go about that? And James has described our condition. He's rebuked this condition. So now let's hear his solution to this condition. Solution to the condition. He writes in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee. Come near to God. And he will come near to you. Wash your hands you sinners. And purify your hearts you double minded. Grieve. Mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning. And your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up. So for James. His readers path. To restoration began with repentance, with a, a submitting to God. And the word that James used here, which is translated as to submit, is a, is a beautiful word. It's a beautiful picture that is represented by this word. It's composed of two parts. You have a preposition under and then the verb to, to order or to place. And it pictured, was used to describe a, a soldier accepting their proper station underneath their captain. And further. James uses this verb here in the original in a passive sense, meaning that his captain here, figuratively speaking, isn't making his subordinate fall in line. Rather, what James is describing is this very act is brought about by the will of the one who submits under the aid of the Holy Spirit. So church, God isn't interested in forced obedience. He desires for his people to love him willingly. Thus, in salvation, he graciously enlivens men and women by his spirit, and they so quickened by the gospel, respond in repentance and believe. So as a question, have you responded to the gospel in this way? Have you recognized that our world, which God created in the beginning, was perfect, designed so that we might live in right relationship with him? but that we messed it all up. Sin entered and destroyed what God had created. And so now we exist in a world that is marred, it's broken, and all of our attempts to escape this brokenness and to find healing simply draw us back into the mess and into the mire, which is why God sent Christ, untainted, untouched by pride and by sin. And so if you repent, of your sin and you believe in Jesus, then you will be free. You will be reconnected with the God 
in whom is life. You'll experience God's great grace. Have you responded to this grace? Because, friends, this isn't a decision that anyone can make for you. Mom, dad can't make it for you, no matter how amazing your parents may have been. Friends can't make this decision on your behalf, nor does being born into a community where this is the prevailing belief doesn't make a difference. This is a decision that you must come to of your own volition. And it's not one that you can keep to yourself. Because Jesus is very clear in his word that if you're embarrassed by me in front of men in life, then I will not stand for you before the Father when death comes. So, as the question, what's keeping you this morning from following Jesus? James calls his readers to submit themselves to God and to resist the devil, and he'll flee. And here, I believe that James is acknowledging the reality of our adversary, not so that we as readers can avoid responsibility for our sin, but rather to engage us in the fact that God is not under threat. Our God is not in a battle with an adversary. There's no battle, brothers and sisters. There's, there's no war. It's over. I mean, the reality here is that he has provide, provided us, God has provided us, his people, with grace, such that all we have to do is resist, and the devil flees. In other words, there are no circumstances in your life in which Satan's desired outcome is the only possible outcome. We always have an out. We always have an out. And you have an out this morning. Satan doesn't have to remain in control of your life. You can be free this very instant. All that you have to do is to come near to God, as James described it, meaning that you recognize that you need Jesus to save you. You, you no longer want to stand off on your own trying to accomplish that which God has already accomplished for you. Submit yourself to God. Come near and he'll come near to you. He's not going to turn you away or refuse you access, reject your advances. Why? Because you were dirty and messed up when Christ performed all this on your behalf. That's the beauty of the gospel. Man-made religion works us through hoops, jumps us through hoops in order that God might grant us, based on our merit, a reward. The gospel says that God worked all this while you were still sinful. His acceptance of us isn't based on merit. It's based on grace. And so, friends, I pray this morning that if you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've, if you've never come near to God, then that today would be that day. And I pray that you would do as James asks here. Wash your hands and purify your hearts. In other words, that you'd, you'd repent of your sin, that you'd stop living in ways that displease God and that are contrary to His Word and that you'd begin obeying. Why? Because as we've seen underlying all of James's letter, faith works. Friends, if we claim to love Christ, then we can't speak ill of one another as James goes on and says, because, and we can't criticize God's Word. Why? Because James concludes it there, this then sets us over God's Word. And there's only one lawgiver and judge one who is able to save and destroy. Who are we to judge our neighbor? Friends, only God can save. And we all need salvation because we all stand rightly deserving of God's damnation. And I pray that we all would recognize that we can't save ourselves. We all need Jesus. So, if you've never, would you this morning humble yourself before the Lord and allow Him to lift you up? And I would like to pray to that end as we close our time together. Would you pray with me? Father, we see in your word the beauty of the gospel. Lord, and it's hard 
In truth, it's impossible for us to wrap our minds around a gift that is free. For as men and women born into a world in which there is no such thing as a free gift, you don't get anything for free. Lord, and we've learned this reality each and every one. But the gospel is extended freely by your grace because of what Christ has done for us. Lord, we can't pay you back. Our efforts at obedience, at working out our faith, aren't done so that we might merit this gift, but are done solely out of love for you at having given us this gift. Father, our life as we follow you in obedience, as we seek to do as Jesus said, and to, if you love me, you'll obey me. Lord, as we seek to obey you, we do so because of what you've given us. Because you've made us, as, as another picture has given us in the scriptures, you've adopted us into your family. You have become as our father and mother. You have made us your children. Lord, this is a reality that you bring about by your grace through faith as we repent of our sin and we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died on a cross, that He was buried in a tomb and raised on the third day. We believe the gospel and we are made your children. And Lord, in light of that, then our life is spent growing and learning to live in light of this reality. Father, we don't become more or more or less your children as we obey or, or disobey going forward. But rather, we simply live more and more in light of this reality so that we reflect our sonship and daughtership. We live in light of this gospel. Father, and this is a beautiful relationship. Lord, one in which, as you described, your burden is easy because it's shouldered for us by Christ. It's light. Lord, it's not the burden that we carry as we seek to try and do this on our own. Bearing the weight of responsibility for being better, hoping that we're more good than bad, and that if you are in fact out there, that we're following the right out there. And there's so many today in our secular age that would question that, contest that. Who's to say that we serve the true and living God when there's so many that claim to do so? Father, but we know because your word has declared it so. You are God. There's no other. Lord, I pray that if there's one today who has never acknowledged this reality, or has been hoping, has been banking on their obedience, on their abilities, Father, would you remind us we don't have any control over tomorrow, even our next breath, and yet we think we do. Father, we know those in our own family this morning, church family who had plans to be with us but weren't able to because life circumstances changed. Father, we give you praise that in the midst of their circumstances, they have not lost their joy for their hope is in one who never changes. But were we to not have that hope, where would we be? How might the rest of this Mother's Day look? God, thank you that we can have confidence and it's a confidence not rooted in us, for we can't keep anything from changing. It's rooted in you, who is good, always, and who loves us. Father, thank you for this love. And I pray that as we stand in a moment, as we sing, 
Lord, that you would lead someone today to seek your forgiveness. There's no magic formula. There's no unique words that need be prayed. But simply acknowledge in their hearts that they're sinful. That they need Christ's salvation. That they would simply ask for that salvation. Claim that salvation. Lord, and then they tell somebody. I'll be down front. May they find me. May they talk with me about it. Lord, so that they might follow through and live in obedience to that heart change that you have brought about by your grace through their act of faith in repenting and believing. Father, we would pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.